Hey, I'm Glenn Robinson, and I've spent the last 30 years as a healthcare leader and overseeing large organizations. And before that, I was in the news business. And I'm Jacob Robinson, his son. I've spent the last five years building a business and learning lessons of leadership along the way. And this is our podcast, Chasing What Matters. On this podcast, we're going to interview leaders from all walks of life and hear their stories of successes and failures and what has made them become who they are today and how their faith and families played a role in their lives and leadership styles. During these interviews, we will be discussing things from business to politics, healthcare to nonprofit, and anything in between to find out how these leaders are chasing what matters in their work and personal life. So welcome to another episode of Chasing What Matters. Hello, everyone. We're so glad that you could join us for another episode of the Chasing What Matters podcast. I'm your co-host, Glenn Robinson. And I'm your other co-host, Jacob Robinson. Dad, today our guest is Larry O'Donnell. Larry is passionate about helping businessmen and women learn God's design for leadership. From the executive suite to the back of the garbage truck, uh, he has seen a lot in his career. You see, Larry is a retired founder, chairman of the board, CEO, and president of Rockwater Energy Solutions, which now select energy services, a public company. During his tenure at Rockwater, they received several awards, including top workplaces, Leadership Award for a mid-sized employer by the Houston Chronicle. Prior to forming Rockwater, Larry spent over 10 years helping to lead the turnaround of Waste Management, a Fortune 200 company and the largest waste recycling services and renewable energy company in North America, where he served as president and COO. During his time at Waste Management, he was the first undercover boss, which we'll talk about today. Prior to his time at Waste Management, he was the senior executive with Baker Hughes, which is the third largest oil services firm in the world. Today, Larry spends time sharing what he has learned about successful leadership throughout his career with organizations, businesses, and churches across the nation, as well as other countries. He speaks regularly on leadership, coaching, and mentorship in business and churches. He also teaches leadership for Deloitte Consulting and leads Bible studies and church retreats. After he retired from his business career, Larry pursued and received his master's in biblical and theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jacob and Glenn. Well, Larry, thank you again for joining us. And just tell us and tell our listeners about growing up and what your family life was like. I had very loving parents. I'm the oldest of my siblings. Uh, I've got a sister, two sisters that are younger than I am and one brother. And we grew up in a very devout Catholic family. We never missed church. Uh, you know, I can remember always having the fire drills on Sunday, trying to get everybody loaded up in the car to go to church. And, uh, you know, my dad was just a wonderful dad, coached me in baseball, uh, football, very involved. We just did a lot of things together as a family. So I, I look back on my family time as, as just a wonderful, wonderful time. I couldn't have had a better family life. Tell our uh, listeners, uh, after growing up, where did you go to college and how you ended up in Houston? So I was born and raised in Houston. Oh, well, that's, that's uh, how ended, you ended up here. So that's, that's I ended up good. there. <laughs> my, my parents were there before I was there. So uh, I was born there. And then I went to University of Texas at Austin, went through engineering there. Uh, then I went to law school. I practiced law for about 10 years. Uh, then I figured out that I enjoyed 
business a lot more than than law. So I made a career move after practicing law. Really, I was doing business transactions and uh, corporate securities type work, real estate transactions. So all business oriented. Uh, I went over to a company called Baker Hughes, which is the third largest oil and gas service company in the world. And I was very fortunate that the CEO there, Jim Woods, uh, really took me under his wing. I told him the reason I was making a change and wanting to come to Baker Hughes is because I wanted to move into business. And Jim served as my mentor uh, all the way from the time I was at Baker Hughes until he passed away just a couple of years ago. So I was very blessed to have Jim in my life as a as a mentor, just a wonderful man. And uh, after spending about 10 years at Baker Hughes in executive positions there, I then uh, was invited or asked to come lead the turnaround, help lead the turnaround at Waste Management. Uh, at the time, it was the largest corporate blow up in history. So think of WorldCom, Enron, other other really large uh, blowups. Waste management was the largest. Uh, it didn't, the things that caused it, uh, again, they didn't happen on my watch. I went over to help turn it around. And uh, I actually had, I know your listeners can't see, but I don't have a lot of hair anymore. Uh, <laughs> when I got there, I had thick, dark hair. I didn't think I my hair would ever look like it does now, which is none. Uh, but it was a real challenge, but one of the highlights of my career, uh, working with the people at Waste Management to turn that mess around and get the truck out of the ditch there. Uh, spent about 10 and a half years there. They had just a little bit about the problems there, and we can go back into it further if you want. But they had average buying a company a day for the year and a half before I got there. So you could imagine roughly 1,200 companies that they had acquired around the world, not really put together very well. So you could say 1,200 different cultures. Um, and that's part of what led to the downfall. They also, the senior management started playing around with the accounting. Uh, in any event, uh, once it blew up, they had SEC investigations, class actions, all kinds of problems. Uh, so that's what I went over and jumped into the middle of. And I can tell you some more stories about that later if you want. Uh, after spending about 10 and a half years there, I felt like we had turned the company around. It was on a great path forward. The stock had roughly tripled since the time I had gotten there. And so I if you look at my career about every 10 years, I'm ready for a change. And I decided to uh, go an entrepreneurial route, started a company up from scratch. I was employee number one. Uh, and then we put together an incredible team and it's now a public company that I'm no longer involved with. And as you said, then after my retirement from there, I went to seminary. Uh, spent about three and a half years at Dallas Theological Seminary and now spend most of my time in ministry. Wow. Wow. Well, uh, I know you and you and my dad have a lot in common in the fact that you both uh, retired and we'll, we'll put quotes around that word uh, and, and then somehow got busier. Uh, so uh, retired is, from business, but didn't retire. Right. I'm still, right. I, in fact, my wife says I'm working harder now than I did when I was working in all my business career. So your wife is not the only one saying yeah. that, my friend. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
Well, um, Larry, I, you know, we're, uh, we're want to do a deep dive into your time at waste management here, here in a minute for sure. And, and, and glean a lot of those principles, uh, that you have, but before we get there, I had the opportunity to hear you speak, uh, maybe it was about a month, two months ago at this point. And you were talking about uh, the new book that you've written uh, that we're going to talk about also. Uh, but you got to share your story and you got to share your family story. Um, and I know your family story is, is, uh, a little like my family story where you had a tragic event early on in your life, uh, your married life, um, and your family's life. Tell our listeners about that event and, and how that shaped you uh, to who y'all are today. Yeah, my wife, we're uh, coming up on our 40th year anniversary this coming month. And we were both so excited to have our first child. I can remember we learned it was going to be a daughter and we were both so excited and we brought our beautiful daughter home from the hospital. And it was like, as soon as we got her home, we noticed after her feeding, she just was really distraught. Her stomach, you could tell, was bothering her. She was not a happy camper at all. And my wife, her name's Dare, mentioned that to her mom. And her mom said, well, don't you remember you were intolerant to lactose? That's probably what's wrong with her. Why don't you just put her on a soy formula and she'll probably be fine. And so Dare did that. We did that. And sure enough, Lindley was happy, feeding great, you know, sleeping good. Everything was great. And we took her in for her two-month checkup and her pediatrician said, yeah, that's got to be what it is, as we explained to him the situation. And he said, let's just make sure I'm going to send you down to the medical center uh, over in Houston. And uh, let's let's I'm going to schedule some tests and let's just make sure that's what it is. Well, this doctor that we got with, unfortunately, had never done the test on a little two month old infant. Uh, he had only done it on adults. So he used the wrong instrument and it blew a lot of air into my daughter's stomach, which then caused her to throw up and aspirate. And she was without oxygen for a very extended period of time. Uh, long story short, she was in intensive care for about four months, and eventually they came and told us, look, she's probably not going to make it through the end of the week. If you want, she may be more comfortable if you all just go home and let her pass away peacefully at home. Uh, needless to say, Dare and I were just devastated. Uh, I was a Christian. I can tell you more about uh, becoming a Christian at some point today, but uh, I was a Christian and I didn't, I didn't lose my faith, but I was pretty angry at God. Uh, it just didn't seem fair. I, and I kept telling God that I prayed all day, seemed like every day saying, God, I know you have the power to make this right. I know you can cure our daughter, um, but you've got the wrong guy. I mean, you know, I've, I start giving him my spiritual resume like he doesn't know. You know, it's like I lead Bible studies. I've led them in high school and college. I'm trying to use the workplace that you've given me as, as my ministry to try to help people. You know, look, I, and I'm going through all this stuff. You got the wrong guy. This isn't fair. How could you let this beautiful little child come into the world and now have to go through so much suffering? And so then my... Anger at God began to sort of turn into guilt, into some guilt. I began to wonder if I had committed some sin and maybe this was the consequence of some sin in my life. And 
you know, I, I just couldn't see how this little, my little daughter could have done anything to cause this to herself. And one morning as I was reading in my morning devotional, I was in the gospel of John and I turned to, I was in chapter nine, beginning to read that. And many of your listeners will know that story. Jesus is walking with some of the disciples and they come upon a man who had been blind from birth. And the disciples ask Jesus, so who caused this man's blindness? Was it his sin or the sins of his parents? And I said, exactly. That's the question I'm asking. <laughs> What's the answer? And Jesus says to his disciples, he said, it was not his sin nor his parents' sin, but it was so that my works and my glory could be shown through that blind man. And that just hit me. It was like, wow, okay, so it's not about my plan. I'm a planner. I'm a type A, get her done, you know, uh, just get after it kind of person. And I already had my daughter's life planned out all the way, you know, she was going to be an athlete and a cheerleader in high school and go to college and get married. And I already had grandkids. You know, I had it all planned out. And what God was telling me was that it was not about my plan. It was about his plan. And I needed to trust God in the plan that he had for our daughter. And through that, it began to really change me because while I was a Christian and I thought I was living my life the way God wanted me to, I began to realize how self-centered I really was. I was entirely focused on myself. Uh, Empathy was not something, it wasn't a tool I could have found in my toolbox if it was there. Um, I was just self-absorbed, focused on my own career, moving up the up the ladder, the career ladder, and uh, not really focused on helping others so much. Even though I thought I was, I really realized it was all about me. And that's what then led me to begin to study the Bible and even further on how does God want me to lead as a leader? And I started reading a lot of books on leadership and what have you. And that's when I then began to sort of try different things. And I've got to keep things simple. So I then began to narrow down some of what I saw were qualities of servant leadership. Uh, And that's what then eventually led me to write my book, uh, which I talk about the five principles that I've narrowed this down to. And we talk about that further as we go along. Well, you know, the um, Melissa and I often reference um, the book of John and that story. Um, because, you know, I think, I think God, um, in ways that we won't understand this side of heaven, uh, decides to, to tell his story in many different ways. And, and I think, um, you know, I'm a firm believer that he's, he's telling a story through Pierce. Uh, I, I, this podcast has heard me say it numerous times and, and friends have heard me say it. I think Pierce tells more people about Jesus deaf and nonverbal, uh, than I do out loud. And so, um, I don't, it, w- it probably won't make sense to me this side of heaven, but but one day um, we'll we'll see the bigger p- picture for sure. I, I am curious though. I know I know you just referenced a bunch of ways that your eyes were open to being more empathetic and and uh, not being as selfish. But I, I want to ask because you know Melissa and I often talk about our life in two different phases. 
pre-Pierce getting sick and post-Pierce getting sick. Um, and I also think that translated to, well, I, I know it translated to my, my business. I think I ran my business differently pre-Pierce getting sick and I run it differently post-Pierce getting sick. Not that I was doing anything bad or immoral or, or different. I think I just viewed work differently than I do now. I think I just had a different perspective. So I'm curious if you had a business mind shift after y'all's, y'all's incident and, and how, if, if at all, that changed the way you, you conducted business. It totally changed the way I conducted business. Uh, as I looked in the Bible and I began to want to better understand how God wanted me to live my life as a leader, uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of scripture on leadership in the Bible. And uh, the, the primary uh, text that I really look to quite a bit that I think is where Jesus teaches about servant leadership is found in Matthew 20. And that story is where two of the disciples, uh, we learn uh, that it's actually James and John, their brothers, and they get their mother to ask Jesus if they can be seated at his right hand and on his left hand when he uh, goes into his kingdom. And Jesus takes that opportunity to call all the disciples together. And by the way, the other disciples weren't too happy with them asking that. Um, But he calls all the disciples together, his team, if you will, to explain to them how he wants them to lead. And he basically tells them that he says, look, the Gentiles, they have great leaders. And I'm paraphrasing. They have great leaders and they lord it over the people who are under their authority. And he says specifically, I do not want you to lead in that way. So Jesus was talking about, I think, the typical top-down leadership model that we see so prevalent today. And that sort of looks like, you know, I worked really hard. I've got to this position and you're all here under my authority to help me continue to rise in my career or to achieve my goals or whatever it is I'm trying to do. And as long as you're helping me achieve my goals and you're serving me, you're going to be fine. If that's not what you want to do, well, then you can hit the road. I'll find somebody else that I'll put in there and we'll be just fine without you. So that's the top-down leadership model. And many of your listeners probably have been in a situation where they've seen that model. They may be in that leadership situation today, or they may even be using that model because that's what they were taught. And Jesus says, I don't want you to lead in that way. And then he goes on and says that he came to serve and not to be served. So here is God, all powerful God that comes to earth And he's saying he came to serve others, and that's how he wants us to lead. And so that's really the opposite end of the spectrum of the typical leadership model that we see. Instead of top down, it's about serving others. It's about pouring your life into others. It's about empowering them to be successful and helping them grow in their careers and in their faith. And as I begin to try to better understand how to put that into practice, that's where I made lots of mistakes. I'm not going to tell you I've, I've perfected servant leadership or empathy. Uh, I'm, still, I'm still working on all those. But as I begin to narrow down 
what I understood. And as I read books about servant leadership and leadership in general, I tried to narrow that down to five principles that I found if I put those in place, they lead to just incredible results, not only for our team, but it creates an environment that people want to be there. They want to be part of the team as opposed to uh, working for a leader because of fear and intimidation. And if they don't do their job, they're going to get fired. They truly want to be part of a team like that, that, I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of a team where everyone cares about one another, everybody's watching out for one another, they're putting each other's interest ahead of their own. Uh, It's a game changer. Larry, I really like the way you're teaching about servant leadership because you're teaching it not as a destination. It's a journey. And um, it's kind of like humility. The moment that we think we got it, we just lost it. And, and so it, it is about getting up every day and continuing to do those servant acts and tell, tell our listeners how you took that type of servant leadership thought process and used it at waste management to help turn that organization around. Yeah. So the five principles that I narrowed it down to, in fact, uh, I write about it in my book. And by the way, my book is called Management Waste. So it is a play on my time uh, at Waste Management. And even the principles that I came up with uh, fit well with with Management Waste or Waste Management. And it stands for clean is the uh, is how I remember it. I have to keep things simple so I can remember it. And the C is about being committed to others. And I think if you're not committed to others when you're in a position of leadership, you're wasting the opportunity that God gave you to lead. Uh, That's what this whole clean is all about, allowing Jesus to clean you up and lead in a way that uh, that he intended you to do that. Uh, Live your life and, and make the fullest of the opportunities and the gifts that God has given each one of us. So being committed is about empowering people, sharing the power with them. Um, And in fact, in the book, I write a great story. If we have time, we can come back to it. It's one of my favorite stories on empowerment of, of how powerful that can be. But when you empower people, they're going to make a mistake and you got to have their back. Uh, If you empower them, and the first time things go wrong, you jump on them. Uh, they're not going to want to take that uh, empowerment from you again, and they're not going to be very happy being on your team. Uh, you got to expect there's going to be mistakes. And the key to that is let's learn. You know, if you're not making a mistake, you're not learning. And uh, I've made plenty of mistakes in my career, in my life. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is at least people can. Uh, make other mistakes, you know, don't make the same mistakes I did, Uh, learn from the mistakes I made. And, uh, you know, you can go on and uh, have some different learnings. But uh, so that's the that's the C. And then the L is listening. And I actually learned that from my dad. That was a great thing that my dad taught me. I grew up in a we had a family construction business and I grew up I think the first job I had was in second grade. I worked in that business all the way through, actually even through uh, college. And uh, 
everything from framing carpenter to plumber, electrician, heavy equipment operator to then leading teams. But one thing that he impressed upon me was how important it was to let the front line know how much you appreciate them. They're the ones that make your business successful or a failure. And, you know, he taught me just to ask two simple questions. You know, first, what things get in the way of you doing your best job every day or cause you the most frustration? And then he told me it's my job to eliminate those things. Uh, and then the second question he said is he, he taught me to ask is ask people if you could change one thing at this company that would make our services and products better for our customers, what would it be? I mean, who better to ask than the people on the front line doing the hard work? And that's one of the things that I employed when I got to waste management right off the bat. I knew nothing about that business other than they picked up my garbage uh, at my house. And I knew if I put it out on the street, it disappeared. Uh, if I got it out there at the right time on the right day. And so I didn't know very much about waste management. I, I knew it was a mess. And that's one of the things that I did. I'd go around at, say, three in the morning. I'd go meet with drivers uh, and tell them what we were doing to try to improve the company. But then I'd go pick a driver and I'd say, hey, I'm going to be your helper today. And I'd go out on the route with that driver all day. And people used to say, gosh, it seems like a waste of time for the president of the company to go pick up trash all day. And I, I'd tell them, look, I learned more in that day, spending that time with that driver than I ever will sitting in my ivory tower office in downtown Houston. And that's actually what we used to build the operating model for that, for that company. As I said, there were 1200 companies all around the world. Everybody thought they had the way to do it there can only be one best practice. And so by getting the input from the frontline people, that's how we built the single operating model that really serves as the basis of what they're still using today. I know they've improved it greatly since I left, but it, that, that formed the foundation of that operating model. So that's, that's what listening is all about. Empathy, I've talked about that a little bit, uh, but it's, it's just placing others' others' interest ahead of your own. Um, and that was really difficult for me. Uh, that was something that actually, I think the Holy spirit has enabled me to do because it's not natural for me. And, uh, particularly when I look, if you'd have told me back then that I was going to be a minister and spend most of my time every day, listening to other people's problems and struggles and issues and trying to help them, I'd have told you, you were crazy. So I know it's not me. It's clearly the Holy Spirit living in and through me to enable me to do that because there's no way I I, I could ever do that on my own. Uh, so that's empathy. And, you know, what's neat about these principles, and then I'll give you the, the, the final two. I set out figuring these out of how to be a leader, how to be the best leader. But as it turns out, these five principles work in all our relationships. If you apply these to your colleagues at work, uh, it doesn't matter if you have people reporting to you or not. Just how do you treat people at work? How do, your friends, your family, and most importantly, your spouse. Uh, I mean, who would you be rather be married to or have as a friend or a colleague? 
somebody that's in it for themselves and always just looking at how you as their friend or colleague can serve them or somebody that you know cares about you so much and is putting your interest ahead of their own all the time. It's very powerful. And to me, it's the empathy component that is the magic that makes all the rest of this work. Um, so the, the next one is on accountability. And that's really, that's what the A is. Uh, that's, there's several aspects to that. But uh, the main one is, I've been blessed, I've told you to have mentors in my life throughout my career. And it's, it's all about pouring your life into other people uh, and being accountable to them to try to help them. And, you know, if you don't have a, a mentor in your life, I really highly recommend you pray a lot about it and get one because it's, a mentor is someone who doesn't, the best mentors that I've had, they don't give you the answers. They ask a lot of really great questions to help you work things out in your mind to lead to the very best solution. Uh, and they have your interest at heart. They don't have any any stake in the game other than they want you to be what God designed you to be and be the best that you can be. So that's that's about accountability. And, you know, I'll, I'll just mention this. Uh, for some reason, this is coming into my head. So maybe this is will help one of your listeners or some of your listeners. I had a this dream nightmare one night. And uh, I'll let you, after you hear it, this help me figure out if it's a dream or a nightmare. But I had died, and I was I was in this line, and I looked up and I noticed I was in line. I was getting ready to go through the gates of heaven, and I was so excited. I got there. I, I mean, it's this is awesome. We're here, and I'm like talking to the people around me, and I hear someone. I hear these voices yelling out, "Larry, Larry." Larry, and I'm looking around, what in the world? And I look, and I'm looking across this deep sort of like valley, abyss. And they're on this, in this other line on the other side. And I notice that they're going, they're going to hell. And I recognize them. They're friends and family that I know. And they're yelling at me and they're going, Larry, Larry, why didn't you tell us what we needed to do while we were alive on earth so we could be in that line with you? Why didn't you tell us? We thought you loved us. We thought you cared about us. And then I woke up and I woke my wife up and I told her, you know, the story. And uh, that had a real impact on me. I know it's not totally biblical uh, what I dreamed, but it had an impact on me to tell me, look, God left us here for a reason. And I'll ask your listeners, you know, why are you here? Why has God left us here? Especially those who are Christians. It's like, okay, if you know you're going to heaven, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven, you're promised eternal life. Why are you still here? And uh, certainly if you have family, it's to you know, take care of your family and what have you. But I think it's bigger than that. Uh, God left us here to, he, he told us all, some of his last words were to go out and make disciples of others. And so what are we doing? How are we doing with the 
blessings and the gifts that God gave us, how are we using those to help God build the kingdom and bring glory to God? And uh, that, that just has really impacted me now in a very powerful way that uh, I, I think we have opportunities each and every day, no matter where we are, at work, wherever, that we have the opportunity to share our story with others uh, and, and help them change their eternity, where they're going to end up. Uh, so I encourage your, your listeners to think about that. And, and then finally, uh, notice that is, there's two aspects to that. It's noticing others when they do a great job, uh, you know, thanking them, telling them what a great job that they've done. It's also noticing, getting to know your colleagues at work, for instance, well enough to know when they're hurting. So you can ask them, hey, it looks like something's really bothering you, you know, and I would ask people, can I pray for you? And of course, at work, they go, I mean, can we do that here? Isn't that illegal? Or, you know, I mean, seriously, pray at work? It's like, look, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, and I never made anyone uncomfortable, but I very seldom had anyone refuse my offer, and we would pray. And it was incredible how many times then after that, might have been the next day or a week later or you a know, month later, they'd come seek me out and say, hey, you, Larry, you have this peace about you, and we know about your daughter, and there just always seems this peace about you. Where do you find that? And there you go. There's the opportunity to tell my story about how I became a Christian and and just the peace that it's brought to me because I know where I'm going when I die. Uh, 100% sure that's what we're promised. And so uh, I encourage your listeners to think about that a little bit. And then the other aspect of notice is noticing yourself. And that's just becoming more self-aware. I think most of us, if not all of us, probably have a much higher view of ourselves than we really should. In fact, if we knew really what people thought about us, we'd probably be shocked. Um, And so in my book, I give you a couple of uh, tools and examples of what I did to try to uh, make my own self a little more self-aware that I found very helpful. So I would understand how it's coming across to one another. So as I started to answer, that's a long answer, but as I started putting these things into practice in the way that I led at work uh, at Waste Management, uh, it just helped build an incredible team. Many of those people are still over there today. In fact, the CEO uh, today that's running Waste Management is someone that I mentored and moved up through the organization I remember when we hired him as just a, as a financial analyst um, and, you know, he's now CEO of the company. Well, well, Larry, thank you for sharing that. And, and I, I really, I think it's a dream. It could be a nightmare. I'm not sure. I'm still debating that, but, but you know, you raise. The good news is I don't know who those people are. When I woke (laughs) up, I do not know, you know, I I can't go up to somebody and say, unfortunately, I saw you're going to hell. I I don't remember who they are, (laughs) but I definitely recognize them uh, at the time. Yeah. Well, isn't it interesting though, that if, uh, if you and I just were standing in line at Lowe's 
and I had discovered some trick of fixing my sprinkler system or some new trick to painting to make it easier for cleanup, I'd share that with you in a New York second. And we probably have all had ministers challenge us that if we had the cure to cancer, we would be sharing it, you know, broad and wide and deep. And yet those of us that, you know, have this assurance of our eternal life, we're less, uh, you know, willing and, and, and very hesitant sometimes uh, to, to share that good news. So I think, uh, I think your dream or a nightmare, whichever it is, is just a great challenge to all of us that we need to make sure that we're not in that line and others are calling our name for sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I love the clean acronym. I uh, took notes uh, when I was hearing you talk at the, at the luncheon and um, still reference it uh, often. And, and, and to our listeners, a side note, make sure you, you purchase Larry's book. We're going to have the link in the show notes and a hundred percent of the proceeds of that book go to various charities uh, that, that Larry uh, and his family support. And so uh, please uh, check out the show notes below and, and get that book and do a deep dive into really this, this clean acronym uh, and this, this servant leadership style. But, but Larry, we, we would be remiss uh, if, if we did not dive into something that has also made you famous uh, and, and your appearance on the very first episode of Undercover Boss uh, a few years back. So, so one, tell us how that happened. I, I know I heard a little bit of that story and I, I came home and immediately told my wife, I found it super fascinating, um, especially about your board. Uh, make sure you tell a story about when you presented the, the opportunity to your board. Uh, but also tell us just about the inner workings of that show. I know a lot of people watch shows and we go, is that really, is that really how it happened? Um, and so just, just tell us about that, that phenomenal opportunity. Yeah, as I mentioned, waste management was a mess when I got there. And so we were working on restoring our uh, the way people viewed waste management. Uh, we were in a big branding campaign, painting our trucks green and uh, just really trying to restore the reputation. And we were working with uh, one of the largest PR firms in the country. They're based out in LA and they represent probably half the fortune 200 companies. And this, uh, these reality TV folks had come up with this concept uh, and it was really based on a great premise that most leaders of companies are clueless about what's really going on down on the front line of their organization, the the people who are really doing the hard work. Uh, So that's the premise. And they couldn't find anybody who wanted to, they couldn't find any companies, I think, to, to do it. I don't know that for sure, but I know they've been working hard to try to find somebody. And so they were bright enough to say, why don't we go to this PR firm that represents the top companies in the U.S.? Maybe they have a client who'd be interested. So they take it to them. And uh, that PR firm, I knew the principals really well because we were working so closely together. And they said, well, we know the company and the guy but it's going to be a hard sell because he's not about calling attention to himself. Um, and so they brought it to me and I said, reality TV, uh, it, like no way. Um, I don't watch that much television. I, I know I don't watch any reality TV. The little bit that I see advertised, it looks like it's about people who have 
just severe character flaws. And I know I've got those and I just assume to <laughs> keep them to myself. Uh, no, now, I'm not now, doing it. Let, let me, let me interrupt you. I'm, I'm curious as, as you say that I can't imagine being that PR executive the night before the meeting with you to pitch you on this idea. How, how was that initial pitch? Was it, Hey, Larry, I, I've got a really crazy idea here and I need you just to go with me for a second. Or, or was he just a full fledged or, or she just believing in this concept? How, what was that? No, about? no, it was more the, the, the former. It was like, <laughs> uh, we've got this. We think it would be great for the company and our sales and marketing team thought it would be great for the company because it was going to put a face on our company, you know, back then, if you'll remember back, the Sopranos were on. So everybody thought anybody in the waste management business, they're all part of the mob. They're, you know, <laughs> former criminals, just bad people. And they thought it'd be a great way to show, no, truly the people who are in this, in our company, in this business are hardworking people. In fact, many of them, they like to have their job that they go to work at three or four in the morning because they can get home in time to be with their kids. Uh, it, it, they're really great people. And they thought, here we can tell their great stories. And they assured me that it wasn't about me. It was really they were going to develop these stories, uh, personal stories of some of our employees. So I like that aspect of it. But at the same time, they told us we would not have any editing rights. And that made me nervous. Uh, I don't know these people. Uh, we're going to take them into our operations all over the place with cameras. They're filming. What? How are they going to edit it? Uh, I didn't want to do it. So I take it to our board of directors. I say, look, our sales and marketing and communications teams, they all think this is going to be fantastic for the company. And here's why. I don't want to do it because we have no editing rights. I don't know what they're going to do. We've worked so hard. And by that time, we were performing really well. I mean, we had rounded the corner. Um, we had restored our reputation. And I said, I don't want just some reality TV thing coming out and destroying everything that we've done. And the board said, you've analyzed it right. It could be fantastic for the company or it could go terribly wrong. We hope you make the right decision. Uh, great. Appreciate that help and that guidance, you know, but, uh, the more I thought about it, they had assured us that we were going to be the very first one and they were going to use ours to try to attract other companies. And ours wasn't even going to air until they had attracted enough other companies to put the whole first season together. So I sort of rationalized in my head that if they make us look really bad, then nobody else is even going to sign up. So at right. least they'll treat us, hopefully, with respect. And uh, we went ahead and went forward with it. The reason they uh, wanted me to do it, by the way, is because they had this concept, which I said they think, you know, leadership doesn't have a clue about what's going on. But the PR firm said the reason Larry's the right one is he's already doing that. I wasn't going undercover, but he's already going out working on a regular basis with the front line. And they liked that idea because they weren't really sure how it was going to come together. Uh, and having somebody that was at least comfortable going out and doing those frontline jobs 
and not freaking out about it. Uh, they thought that would be positive. And by the way, when they filmed it, I get asked this all the time. There were no rehearsals or do-overs or, you know, repeat that. Or All they did, they would tell me the night before what job I was going to have. I never knew who I was going to work with. Uh, they picked them out. And I, we did this over about a, uh, I'm trying to remember, it seems like it was about, it was over a two-week period. And I had a new job every day. And then they picked the four they wanted to highlight on the show. But all they did, they just carried little handheld cameras, two of them. Uh, so it was not intrusive at all. In fact, we would forget about the cameras after about, you know, first 10 minutes of my job every day. Uh, so there weren't rehearsals or duo. It wasn't set up or anything. They just filmed it as it happened. Wow. Larry, a lot of those episodes is uh, there are chances for the boss to pour into the life of one of those employees uh, that may be undergoing some sort of monetary challenge uh, or someone in their family is trying to, you know, get a vehicle that's reliable or they're trying to go back to college or different things like that. Did that come up naturally in, in your particular episode? Was that something that was already built in of saying, hey, we're going to be looking for a way in which your organization can pour back into the lives of some of your employees? Um, or did this just kind of take a life of its own and, uh, and develop naturally? It was interesting the way that developed. Uh, the producers of the show wanted me to do something for each person that was monetary. They wanted me to give them a bunch of money, a bonus of some type, and make a big deal about it You know, on during the filming of the show. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the exact same thing that I do when you all are long and you know long gone and uh, y'all have left. Same thing I do when I go out and work with these people. When I see something that I can do to help them, it might be in their life, it might be in their career. Uh, that's what I do, and that's exactly what I'm going to do on this show. I'm not going to be any different just because the cameras are rolling. And so, yeah, there was there was one employee, uh, if you've seen the show, she had, well, she was doing the work of about, I don't know, six people because I don't know why that situation even existed. But in any event, I saw the talent that she had. And by the time I left Waste Management after the show, we had promoted her, I don't know, maybe five times to where she was head of sales for the whole state. Wow. And uh, so it was that type of thing. I remember there's another guy who I worked with and he had destroyed his kidneys uh, from high blood pressure and he didn't pay attention to his high blood pressure. And he was on dialysis. He had to go into dialysis every other day. And and yet the attitude that he brought to work every day, I mean, he was an inspiration. And what he wanted to do he said he never, he had always wanted to have the ability to go tell others of how they needed to pay attention to their blood pressure, but he didn't know how to do it. And I said, hey, we have these health fairs all around the country. How about you become one of our speakers at this health fair and you just tell your story? And he said, well, I don't know how to speak publicly. Like I said, I'll, I'll teach you, we'll train you. And 
all you have to do is just tell your story like you just told me. And anyway, uh, he started doing that. And he said that brought more joy to him than anything else that he had done. And so it was that type of thing that, you know, if you give somebody some money, they'll buy a boat or whatever, and, you know, it's gone. I always looked to things that could be helpful to somebody that would be life-changing. Right. Absolutely. Well, Larry, you are a strong believer in having mentors in your life, and uh, you mentor a number of people. If someone and, and uh, among our listenership is looking for a mentor, what are some ideas, what are some things they should be looking for to find a good one? I would say someone who has a lot of experience in a lot of different things so that they can bring a different perspective than what you might have. That's what I always found helpful. It was those questions that would be asked by my mentor that were questions that I hadn't even thought of that would sort of help frame my thinking of how to solve a problem. Um, You know, I think it's also important to have a spiritual mentor. I've been blessed to have a spiritual mentor, somebody who actually showed me uh, when I was in seventh grade. They took the time to show me that what I had been taught my theology by my parents, and I don't blame my parents. It's what they had been taught. It was just wrong um, that I had been taught that I had to work towards earning my salvation. I had to have faith in Jesus Christ, but I had to work hard and do a bunch of religious stuff to get there. And fortunately, somebody took the time to actually show me in the Bible that that's not, that's not biblical. Um, and, and so having a mentor that can help you even when you're struggling spiritually to help guide you can be very helpful. So I think they're both important. They can be the same person, but they don't have to be. And I would pray. uh, One thing to lead you there is just ask God to put somebody in your life. I'm always honored when people ask me, I I can't take everyone on, but uh, you know, I disciple about four to six men every year. I'll spend 12 months with them. And then, but the idea is I'll do this. I'll pour myself into you for a year, but up front, you got to agree that at the end of the year, now you're going to go do it. And you you have to just go do it with one person, uh, but you got to do it every year. And uh, that can be very powerful, but I get more joy out of doing that than almost anything else I'm doing now. Well, you know, you, you talk about, you, you have talked about how your servant leadership style um, and your faith got to be interwoven a, a lot of times. And, and if somebody was having a, an issue at work, you would say, hey, can I pray for you and, and things like that. I know there's probably some of our listeners out there sitting going, well, yeah, you're the CEO of waste management. That, that's pretty easy to walk up to somebody in the accounting department and say, Hey, can I pray with you? Right. You're, you're, you're the big boss. Um, what would be your advice for people that are younger, uh, people that are starting out in their career, people that are older in their career and just may not be the boss, um, are saying, I, I, I truly want my workplace to be a place of kingdom impact. What, what advice would you give them pretty tangible advice of, of how to go about doing that in your opinion? Well, first of all, let me also make it clear. I was doing I was asking people to pray with me very early in my career, way before I was ever a CEO. But uh, I would say that, hey, pick up my book. And if you can put 
these five principles that I've just described into action, people are going to see that just by the way that you're living your life. You know, uh, the biggest mistake I made early in my career is I wanted to be somebody rather than be a servant to others. Hmm. That was the biggest mistake I was making. And I think if you can focus on putting these clean principles into practice, uh, you're going to end up not wasting the gifts and all the opportunities that the Lord has given you. uh, And you're going to be able to live your life in the way that he's designed for you uh, and, and, and not be management waste not waste all of those opportunities. So that's what I would tell anybody, no matter where you are in your career. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Larry, let me ask, uh, you're no stranger to podcasts. Uh, You actually have your own and you also do a periodic blog that's very important. Tell our listeners about those two projects and how they can connect with you via those platforms. I appreciate you asking. Uh, Yes, I have a website, LarryO'Donnell.com. Very easy to find. And uh, you can go on that website. I've got videos of some of my talks on there, some of my sermons. uh, And I also, you can subscribe to both my weekly podcast, which is the Bible study that I lead in in Austin. Uh, I record that and put that out. It comes out on Monday mornings. And then I also write a weekly blog. It's geared more towards leadership. And that comes out on Thursdays. So you can sign up for those, each one separately on my website. Or a really easy way to do it is if you'll just send a text message to the number 56316. And for your listeners who know the Bible, uh, 5-6 on the phones, the letters J-N, are represented by five and six. So it's John 316. So 56316 is the number. And then just type Larry in the text box and you'll be signed up for both of them. Uh, So yeah, I really appreciate that. I hope some of what I'm doing every week uh, can be helpful to some of your listeners. Let me also say though, that you can, you can also access my book there. It'll just lead you to Amazon and my books available in print as well as an audio book for those who would rather just listen to it while they're driving to work. Perfect. Well, to our listeners, uh, as always, we will have uh, all of those links uh, in the show notes below and we highly encourage you to, to check those out. Uh, Larry, one, one last question before we jump into our uh, world famous rapid fire questions uh, here on the show. Uh, if you could go back uh, and talk to Larry O'Donnell at 25 or 30 years old, what advice uh, would you give a, a younger Larry? I would definitely tell myself, and I wish somebody would have told me, to not be so wrapped up into myself. Uh, it's not about me trying to be somebody, but it's about me serving those that God has put in my life around me, both my family, friends, uh, people at work. It's really about being a servant to everyone else around me. It's about everyone else. It's not about me. And I think that's why God, why, why Jesus summed up the commandments by simply saying, love God, love everyone else. There's something to that. And you want to see a change in your relationships, no matter what they are family, friends, colleague, work, uh, 
whatever. Just put these five principles into into uh, practice and just see what it does. For instance, my wife, uh, you know, I mentioned I've been married now almost 40 years. I'm still figuring this out. But uh, about 99.9% of the time we're having a little friction. It's usually because I'm focused on myself. I'm either wanting her to do something that she's not doing or I'm wanting her to do something for me and I don't feel like I'm getting enough attention or it's all about me. And as soon as I shift the focus and say, you know what, it's all about her, all of a sudden the tension goes away, Uh, you know, uh, we're restored and I get back way more than what I thought I was missing out on. So these things really work. They're not only biblical. I give you some biblical references in the book, uh, but they actually work. I've, I've tried them. Wow. Well, that's, that's great advice. Um, well, as we, as we conclude here, uh, we, we don't want to let you go until we can just ask you a few more uh, of these rapid fire questions to, to get a little bit more knowledge from you. So, uh, Dad, why don't you start off uh, with the first one? Well, this episode has already been so rich in advice, but Larry, I know you have more. How about the best and worst advice you've ever received? Yeah, I would have to say the worst advice that I ever received was that I needed to not only believe in Jesus Christ, but I had to do a bunch of stuff, a bunch of religious stuff and sacraments and what have you to earn my way to heaven. And because of that, I, as a young boy, had many, many years of just tremendous guilt and going to confession every week, confessing the same sins and feeling like there is no way I'm ever going to make it to heaven. And that leads to the best advice I ever got. And that was somebody taking the time to actually show me the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which is when you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you believe in your heart that he died and was buried and rose on the third day and paid the debt for your sins, your sins are forgiven, past, present, future, and you're assured of being with him in heaven. And that has brought tremendous peace to my life. No matter what I'm going through, no matter what trial I'm going through, even things as bad as the trial with my daughter, uh, which you know, still continues. By the way, she's 36. So she didn't die uh, when we took her home. But she's had a lifetime of of struggles and difficulties with her brain injury and physical impairments. Uh, but yet, as bad as those things are, I always am at peace because I know God's got this. I trust God. I don't always understand what what's going on, uh, but I trust him and I'm I'm at peace. So that was the best advice I ever got. That's great. That's great. Well, you, earlier you uh, referenced uh, one of, uh, I, I believe, uh, these individuals that you're probably going to name. But the next question, who are the most influential people in your life? Well, Jesus Christ, no doubt. Uh, I'm so thankful for what he did for me and everyone else who's, who will place their faith in him for their salvation. But I would say my dad uh, was the biggest influence on my life. I am fortunate that he's still alive. And uh, 
he truly loved me and I love him and uh, just the, the way he poured his life into my own and how much he taught me gave me a lot of responsibility at very early ages to even to even lead crews of people that were much older than I was. And I, I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but he enabled me to learn a lot. And I learned a lot from him and continued to do so. Great testimony. Larry, in addition to some of the things we've been talking about, what big events have taken place in your life over this past year? Well, the uh, publishing of my book, that was a really big event for me. Uh, I'd never in my wildest dreams would have ever thought I would write a book, but God put that on my heart and it was just so exciting to see it out now and people are reading it and sending me emails and uh, telling me how much they're getting out of it, uh, which also then led to my podcast and my, and my blog. And it just is so encouraging to see the way God's using all three of those uh, to really impact other people's lives. And it's not about me. I didn't do any of this to bring attention to myself. I'm just trying to help others. God has had me in training uh, all my life and the little bit that I can share from my experiences and trials and tribulations to try to help others through theirs. uh, It's just very rewarding. In fact, I'm finding more joy in what I'm doing now than any of the biggest deals that I did in business. It's just, uh, it's a joy to wake up every day and just say, Jesus, I don't know what we're going to do together today, but you know, let's go and then lay my head down at night and reflect on the various interactions that he gave me uh, throughout the day. And it's, it's, it's just, it's humbling, but at the same time, uh, it just uh, brings a lot of joy. Wow. Well, I, uh, I know you have probably had the opportunity to travel um, uh, 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 quite a bit uh, in your career, but uh Looking back over your life, what is the best or most meaningful place you have ever visited? It would definitely be Israel. And uh, my wife and I had an opportunity to travel there with a small group of friends. Um, And I would lead a a little lesson every day on where we were going to go. And I just, I'll never forget, I baptized our group in the Jordan River, and then uh, my wife baptized me there, rebaptized, which I know is not a biblical term, but uh, we just symbolically went through it again. And we might not have been right where Jesus was baptized, but we were close. Uh, nobody knows exactly where it was. But the feeling I got from that, I mean, it, I just can't even describe it. And the whole trip throughout Israel, it any of your listeners ever have an opportunity to go do that? It just brings the whole Bible to life. Uh, it, it's it was really a moving experience. Wow. Well, Larry, you and I are at a similar stage of life, and last year uh, it was our 40th anniversary, and we had booked a trip to Israel, and needless to say, that didn't make. And uh, so we have rescheduled it for 2022, and that'll be our first trip to the Holy Land, and we cannot wait. We are really looking forward to it. Yeah, you'll be amazed. Oh, I I I think indeed we will from everything that I hear. And this is one question I can't wait to ask you. Best and worst job you've ever had? Let's see. Uh, 
the very best job I've ever had, and I, I would love to do this every day, is I was a framing carpenter. And the reason I like that is you're outside, you're working hard, and what you're doing, you, you get an immediate feedback. I mean, you just see the building go up so quickly, that frame of a house. Uh, it's just every day you can step back, and, and look at what you accomplished. Uh, so I, I just really enjoyed that job as a, I was doing that when I was in high school. Uh, the worst job I ever had, and Glenn, please don't take offense to this because I know you're, you're very involved in, in healthcare, have been in your career. I, as, a, as a young boy, my aspirations were to go to medical school and be a doctor. And I heard about this program when I was in high school that you could you could sign up for this thing, but you had to commit to being there one night a week uh, for a full year. And every month they moved us into a different department in the hospital. So it was great. It was an opportunity. It was a volunteer job. It's kind of like an orderly, you know, whatever. Uh, and I'm so glad I did that because. I learned I was not cut out to be a doctor. Um, for whatever reason, the interns and the folks doing the residency there, they discovered me. And I mean, it was tough. Uh, they, they had a lot of fun at my expense, but uh, I, I figured out I didn't like the sight of blood, I, you know, and they just, <laughs> they played more pranks on me. But uh, I was glad I did it. I didn't quit, even though I wanted to, not because of the abuse they gave me. Just I, I was not cut out to look at some of the things I, I had to had to see yeah. medically. And then, you know, then along comes my daughter and turns out, uh, you know, I, I did have to deal with that stuff. But uh, that was I'm glad I had di I did that because it showed me I didn't have what it took to be a doctor. No, that, that's that's good to know before you get into med school. Uh, that, yes. that is <laughs> I, I didn't waste you know I didn't waste my whole college career pre med and med school. Uh, I, I learned it early, so I, I went to engineering instead. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, and engineering is not an easy pathway, but, you know, I do have a still a tremendous respect for our doctors. I mean, they, they spend half their life in school before they ever get a chance to begin their career. And so yes. they, 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 they do make a lot of sacrifices. I have, I have uh, one of my, uh, I was hanging out with him this weekend, a former roommate of mine in college, uh, one of the brightest humans I know. Uh, he is still in his fellowship. He still has four more years in his fellowship. Uh, so it will be some, uh, I think his wife said 13 or 14 years of quote unquote schooling, uh, before, wow. uh, he's, he's done, but, um, yeah, uh, much, much better and brighter than I am, uh, for sure. For sure. Uh, well, Larry, what book are you reading right now? You know, I just finished reading a book that a friend of mine gave me. I had shared the gospel with him and, uh, he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and then he came across this book that he wanted me to read. I wish I'd known about this book a long time ago. It's called The Red Sea Rules. Uh, it's a short little book. It's by Robert J. Morgan. And what the author does is he uses the story uh, of the Israelites, you know, crossing across the 
departed Red Sea out of Exodus 14 to really give 10 strategies to help us all when we're dealing with difficult times. And it's a quick little read. I mean, I read it in one setting. It's a small little book. I highly recommend this to your listeners. Uh, it is a just a wonderfully put together book. I think it's been out for a very long time. I just never knew about it. So the Red Sea Rules by Robert J. Morgan. Awesome. And Larry, besides Management Waste, the best book you've ever read? It'd have to be the Bible uh, for sure. I mean, it is the most amazing book because I've read that book cover to cover. I can't tell you how many times. And yet every week when I'm preparing for my lesson for our Bible study, I may be reading a text that I've read a hundred times. And yet every single time the Holy Spirit says, you're ready for a new little thing. Let me show you this new little thing. It's, it's something new every single time I read it. Um, it's just an incredible book, and I, I can't get enough of it. Yeah, you know, uh, if our listeners, if you haven't had a chance to go back uh, and listen to Craig Dennison, uh, I, we highly encourage you to do that. Uh, Craig runs an organization called First 15, uh, where they send you a devotional each morning where you spend the first 15 minutes of your day. Uh, in God's word uh, and letting it speak to you. And so um, just to echo what Larry was saying, uh, I highly encourage you to take advantage of those those tools out there to help you uh, really let the word of God uh, become alive to you and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Uh, well, Larry, last question. What's next for Larry? Who knows? Uh, you know, I I just make myself available, like I say, every morning when I wake up. It's God, whatever you want to do together today, I'm available. And so I don't know. I, my intention is to just keep doing my ministry stuff. I'm, I'm still on a couple of boards, uh, but primarily my day is spent uh, all day, every day in ministry, and I'm, I'm loving it. So I don't know where God will continue to take this, but uh, I'm open. Wherever, wherever he leads, I'm ready to go. That's awesome. Well... Larry, uh, we cannot thank you enough uh, for taking time to sit down uh, and chat with us today. Truly was an honor, uh, but also just getting to learn about these principles and, and dive a little deeper in, in your school of leadership. So thank you for sitting down with us. Jacob and Glenn, I just love what you all are doing, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to be on your show. So thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, to our listeners, uh, like we've referenced uh, so far, we're going to have all the links uh, to Larry's social media, uh, his website, his podcast, the blog, uh, anything, uh, the book, anything else uh, you can find about Larry. We're going to have all those things listed in the show notes. So please, please, please uh, click below and, and, and take a deep dive into those. And as always, thanks for listening today. Thanks so much, Larry. Larry O'Donnell, our guest today, the chairman of the board and CEO of Rockwater Energy Solutions and also an author. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Make sure you subscribe, share our podcast with others, and follow us along on Instagram. And until next time, keep chasing what matters.